So, Sophia, I have a question for you. Do you think it's more likely for there to be a porn parody of this movie called The Number 69 or a stoner parody of this movie called The Number 420? I think it's more likely that God would strike us down for our insolence. Welcome to Off the Film Path. Here we review and discuss movies that, for better or for worse, are less known to the general public. Today we are discussing 2007's The Number 23. I'm Kyle. And I'm Sophia. And all right, I got a, a couple of things I want to lay some groundwork for this fucking movie. So this is absolutely one of our one of my revenge movies for things like The Velocipaster or Southland Tales. Southland Tales. I'm still pissed about Down and Derby, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jewish. I hold a grudge. Fuck you. (laughs) Well, that's a mood. Yeah. So, God, you might want to cut that one. (laughs) 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 I just thought about that. Yikes. (laughs) Leave it in, coward. (laughs) (laughs) So this movie is based around a real thing that freaks and weirdos actually believe, and that is the statistically anomalous recurrence of this one specific number, 23, all over the place in world history and events, which if, as you're watching the way too many front credits, there's some of that, like you have to pause to catch all of them, but there are like a couple of the common things like Caesar was stabbed 23 times. There's actually a lot of Rome facts that end up in the 23 enigma, which is how you know it's mostly men. Return. Return. (laughs) So yeah, that's the sort of like, it is a numerological obsession. It's a conspiracy theory. It is absolutely confirmation bias and it is based in nothing. You go looking for the number, you find the number. Your brain finds a way to find the number. This is based on nothing, but it has driven a couple of people crazy. So that's what I wanted to start with. Since you said so much of this is like conspiracy based, I am shocked the word Jew doesn't come up in this movie at all. Yeah. Yeah. This feels like it's primed for it. Like, there are 23 elders of Zion. (laughs) I didn't bother to do this beforehand, but I'd be curious if you could do something with, like, the simple substitutions with the letters J-E-W. Yeah, give me just a second. 5, 10 is 15. W is 23. <laughs> so 16, 23. No. You could probably make it something if you tried hard enough. Sure. And you might have to go back to the, the original spelling, Yehuda. Oh, and then get into some gematria. I mean, what is gematria but numerological obsession? Exactly. Masquerading is like pseudo-religion. My favorite example of that is the woman who got real pissed about monster energy drinks. (laughs) We've talked about this before, but I'll bring it up again. Where the M almost looks like three vavs next to each other. Or like three claws that have scratched something. Exactly. But gematria numerology for vav is six. So it's six, six, six. It's just like, okay. It's a reference to Nero. Nero died so fucking long ago. Leave it alone. Let's get into it. 
I already know I'm going to be skipping over large swaths of this movie. Yeah, I mean... Easily a full 10 minutes of this movie is sex scenes. Easily a full 10 minutes, and they're weird sex scenes, even by my already weird standards. Yeah, because they have Jim Carrey. (laughs) Pre-beard, though. All right, so we jump into this on February 3rd, 2-3. This is how this fucking stupid thing works. It happens every year. Fucking whatever. And it's Walter's birthday. Walter's our main character. This is Jim Carrey. And, like, clearly they got a hold of the delivery uniform he wore for the first five minutes of Ace Ventura. It does not fit well, and he has the same haircut as Anton Chigurh. (laughs) Yeah. It does not wear well on him. Anyway, he's a dog catcher, and he's just about to clock out. It's 5.58. I tried. I don't think that's anything. No, it's 4.59. Or, yeah, 4.59. So, nope, that's 18. So, yeah, at this point, like, he gets a call one minute before he clocks out to go chase down this scavenging animal behind a Chinese restaurant. And basically, he tells us there's been a series of coincidences that led him to being late to pick up his wife or led him to being called to handle this dog, which in turn, more coincidences, he's late to pick up his wife. She finds this book called The Number 23. I'm going to skip over all of this because that doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this actually super does not matter. Point is, Walter has no friends. And so they hang out with his wife's friends on his birthday, most of whom he does not like. I need to pause for one moment. Sure. This is not important. Mm -hmm. But at this party, there is a woman doing charades, right? That actress is the voice actor for Naruto. Outstanding. Fucking outstanding. Also, I'm not counting it for the purpose of Friend of the Pod, but the one lady from Opening Night who was in a bet with Malcolm, Tay Diggs. Yeah. That lady is in this movie somewhere, but I didn't recognize her. So I'm not counting it. Fair enough. On IMDb, it's like sexy co-ed or something. Like, it's not a role. (laughs) Is that the lady who gets murdered? Like the actual. No, 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 no. Because that's a named role. This is like a no one. (laughs) Oh, God. No, that sucks. That sucks. Okay. Anyway, I guess you get your start somewhere. And you get to be on opening night, a movie that is worthwhile. (laughs) I mean, it was funny, especially like Tay Diggs' part. Now he's got this book. His wife's been reading it. She says, hey, check it out. We're going to come back to part of it. Like, I'm going to put this one. In the chat so I don't forget about it because I need to say this or I will go insane, but it will spoil the rest of the movie if I do it now. Is it how the beginning of the book says, if this resembles your life, stop reading? (laughs) No. Oh. (laughs) Don't say it. Don't say it. Yeah. So initially, Walter isn't like super interested in reading. Also, Walter has a miserable sense of humor. Cannot quit, but constantly tries. It's painful. By God, does he try? (laughs) Just. It's like Viacom and Hellraiser. They just, they kept trying. So he reads the like intro to the book, which is the narrator saying, you can call me Fingerling. Here's a little about me. We cut from that. He goes to a psych evaluation that nothing really comes to this other than the psych lady saying, yeah, you're fine. You just have a bad sense of humor. Yeah. So we go back to the house. He's reading more. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's, so as he's getting into this book, he's noticing that a lot of the things that happen to this main character, Fingerling, 
kind of parallel events in his life to a degree that's past uncanny and is getting into creepy. For example, Walter's mother committed suicide, whereas Fingerling says that his mother just died. Fingerling is a detective, and Walter is a dog catcher, which is, I guess, also a municipal employee who hunts down animals that would prefer not to be hunted down, or critters that would prefer not to be hunted down. The parallels at this point are tenuous, but they do get stronger. Right. So then we kind of get into more of the meat of the book with Fingerling as an adult. And they do this useful thing where they give the scenes where it's Jim Carrey imagining himself as the character in this book a lens flare of sorts. Yeah, it's also shot in noir. Yeah. Very Rembrandt lit. They did the same camera trick in Repo, like for a lot of that movie. Oh, God, yeah. They did that and they fuzzed up the lenses a little bit here and there and that was annoying. Point is, it's helpful for this movie to see what's Jim Carrey as Walter and what's Jim Carrey as Walter imagining himself as Fingerling. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, okay, I will say that as a younger person, I liked this movie a lot more than I do now. And I found that these scenes where Walter is imagining himself as Fingerling were among my favorite in the movie because they broke out of this extremely boring New England nightmare. And they were noir. They were dark and sexy and weird and creepy. Speaking of which, I wrote, Fingerling has a finger fling, A, with Mm. Fabrizia. Fucking Fabrizia. Yeah. Fabrizia is Fingerling's girlfriend? Sure. Peers that they met at... An arson? <laughs> and she tries to grab his gun? And their relationship does not get less weird. No, she's very into danger, sexually. <laughs> I believe the term is knife play? It is. Typically, knife play is done a little more carefully than here. But, you know, it was 2007. Different times. Next is that Fingerling is on the case of a woman that gets referred to as Suicide Blonde. All right, this one, I will admit, this was one of the stylized noir scenes that I did not like because I've known people who were like persistently suicidal and it's not fun and I don't like to be reminded of it. So Suicide Blonde's entire deal is like somebody reported that she was going to hang herself to the police and so Fingerling comes in and tries to talk her down. She knows that he's trying to talk her down. Most suicidal people don't actually want to commit suicide. They just want the pain to stop. So the key is distracting them, getting them talking about something pleasant. So he tries that. But because he's fingerling, he's not super good at it. Yeah, this is where we first find out about an obsession with the number 23. Yes. So her father had this numerological obsession with the 23 enigma. And it drove him to murder-suicide his wife and himself to protect their daughter, the Suicide Blonde. But she caught the bug. And like, when we see Suicide Blonde's apartment, we're like, ah, shit, there's paper all over the walls. And it's not like professionally done wallpaper. It's just paper taped to the wall. And we're about to figure out what's underneath that paper. I mean, you already know because it's been set up You basically have to not be paying attention to not see this twist coming. But she gets in a tizzy and Fingerling thinks he talks her down. Feels like he's done a good job. 
And then her cold, dead body flies out of the window and lands at his feet. There's something about her boyfriend also being dead, and that doesn't make any sense or come up. So I'm going right past it. Yeah, it's one of the many dropped threads in this. However, Fabrizia learns about this development and says, take me to the apartment. No, just take me to the apartment. Take me to the apartment and fuck me there. Which just... The things we do for love. I'm kidding. (laughs) Sure. This fucking movie sucks. It's pretty bad. Anyway, Fingerling has seemingly inherited the 23 obsession. Okay, I posit that it's not that he heard it from Suicide Blonde. It's that the wallpaper came down while they were fucking in her apartment. Okay, yeah. That's what really did it. I have nothing to back that up. Just like, could have walked away with Suicide Blonde having done that and then just been fine forever. Fucking Fabrizia! Classic Sophia, blame the woman. Hey, fuck you. (laughs) Anyway, somehow, reading about it means that Walter is now obsessed with 23 in his life. Yeah, I... This is too much math for an obsession for me. I don't like this level of math. And by the way, they run into situations where it doesn't work all the time, and they have to find a contrivance to make it work. Yeah. It's also gotten to the point where his son is picking up on this as well. First off, his son is played by Logan Lerman, who would go on to do some very good movies and also the Percy Jackson movies. I actually like the first Percy Jackson. I just think it's a bad adaptation. I didn't see the second. But also, his son's name is Robin. Their last name is Sparrow. He dead-ass named his son Robin Sparrow. Because of course he did. Have you heard this guy's jokes and the seriousness with which he is trying to be funny? I'm not surprised by that. His wife, Agatha, also known as Aggie, correctly points out that if it were a different number, they'd find other justifications. Yup. For example, one of the things they say is they live at 1814. And it's like, 18 plus 1 plus 4, or 1 plus 8 plus 14. And it's like, well, how did you decide which ways to split it up? That was arbitrary. You chose that. Either way, Kyle, it's 23. I'll kill you, Sophia. (laughs) Fucking stupid. Red. He manages to get it with the color of the wall that Agatha painted. It's just, it's obsessive behavior. And like, at this, this is the point where Agatha should have been like, absolutely not. We're shutting this down. During the Suicide Blonde section, something comes up about pink. And she's like, it's red, some number, white, some number. And I was like, in what measuring system? I work with computers. You do red, green, blue values, or you do a hex code. You don't just say a single number. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe she like R-E-D and added those up. And that was the number for red and then white. Did the same thing. And then you, just, you have to divide them or shit like that. Pink is four letters. So you divide by four. <laughs> it's like... oh, Exceptionally stupid. Anyway, Walter wakes up in the fucking middle of the night and starts counting shoes. And then this happens a few quote unquote scenes later. This happens like. 40 minutes later. I don't know. I skipped a bunch, I'm sure. This movie is very, very, like, I will say this. You have to watch the timestamp on this one just to keep it straight in your head because it is very dreamlike and on purpose because it is a movie about madness and the state of sinking into it and recovering and then sinking into it. And it can be disorienting and illusory. And that's kind of the point. 
Aggie convinces Walter to talk to her friend, Isaac. Isaac is played by a guy named Danny Houston. You might recognize him from the earlier X-Men movies as William Stryker. Yes. This is a guy that we've seen. And, okay, I will say that in this movie, there is the implication that Isaac and Agatha are close. Problems polyamory could solve. (laughs) (laughs) So, Isaac as Sophia did at the beginning, points out many natural examples of 23. But he also specifies that it's linked to paranoia. And he also calls out that it's a thing that exists in the real world. Like, he calls it the 23 enigma. And so he does call it out as a conspiratorial thing that makes people crazy over nothing. And one of the things he says in there that I think is really clever is he goes, well, of course, the conspiracy theorists will tell you that it's everywhere, and there's a reason for that. After all, the Earth spins on an axis of 23 degrees, and when you tell them it's actually 23.5, they say, well, of course, 5 is just 2 plus 3. It is super stonks for creepy people, creepier people. To me, a lot of this scene came off as Isaac encouraging his delusion, which is something you're not supposed to do. But also he says, listen, you need to read the rest of the book. If I get this correctly, I'm not sure I do, but I think Isaac is a philosophy professor, not a psychologist, psychiatrist. That makes sense. But anyway, he does say that like, well, you should finish the book. And if you still feel like this fingerling person is a reflection of you, then the author knows you very well indeed. And only he has your answers. Something that we kind of skipped over from earlier, but I think is also worth pointing out. Walter takes the book to a bookshop of sorts. And the guy's like, this man has never published anything before or since. And it is self-published, self-printed. Yeah, so the fact that it exists is very bizarre. I mean, self-publishing, it is a thing and it is a potentially disruptive thing because, I mean, not every author, points itself, has the ability to attract the attention of the big publishing houses. I think there are three of them because capitalism is a tendency towards monopoly. So like self-publishing, I'm willing to give that self-published and self-printed. That is a manifesto, ladies and gentlemen. That is the Unabomber's thing in book form. Back to where we were. Walter is reading more. And in the book, Fingerling sees that Fabrizia is cheating on him with this guy, Miles, who is a psych guy and is played by Danny Houston. So he very clearly draws parallels between the book with Fabrizia cheating, and Agatha cheating with Isaac. Yeah, it is at this point that the sharp and not-at-all-bored film analyst will notice that this is the part where it's a liminal moment in the classical sense where there's a doorway. He passes through the door, and now he believes himself to be fingerling. Before then, he's just kind of like projecting himself, as you do when you read a book. Like The purpose of a protagonist, especially one that isn't named, or one that is named something very generic, is so you can see the adventure from your own perspective. This is the point where Walter is just fully committed. He is fingerling. Sees Isaac and Agatha at Aggie's cake shop, but nothing's happening. He's just inferring a lot that's not true. Yeah. If you are sinking into paranoid delusions, though, and you see something that sort of reflects what you read in a book and then doesn't go great... You can be forgiven for seeing something that is entirely unproblematic, 
but looks like the beginning of that thing. It's wrong, but it's understandable how you got there. Like, I see the logic. It's not good, but I see how you got there. Agreed. Next I have is that Walter has a nightmare where he has killed Agatha. Yeah, and it's framed in such a way that it's like nested nightmares. Yes. It's very confusing. And this movie, I swear to God, it's like shaking you by the collar and being like, this movie is supposed to be weird and hard to follow. Because he wakes up from the nightmare where he has killed his wife and then does a lot of the same actions. And presumably that's the real world. But it's just like, but why do the same things if you just had this nightmare where you did whatever? I can't. That was your hint that it was actually another dream. Oh, okay. Yeah, because then he wakes up. Because that's the one where he's like, he has a dream that he's killed Agatha and then wakes up and gets a glass of water and there's blood all over his hands and he goes back up to his bedroom to see that he's killed Agatha. That was the one I was talking about. So I was talking about second nightmare where, as you described, gets a glass of water, sees that he's killed her. But then when he wakes up from that, again, presumably real world, he does the same set of actions for like three things. Hey Kyle, what time? 11, 11, but then it's actually 11, 12. It turns 11, 12 as he's looking at the clock. It happens twice a day. It's not a thing. <clears throat> anyway. I will say, this movie did do a pretty good job about showing us his mental state because they show us 23s constantly. Yes. Sometimes it's just a framing thing where, like, the two of one thing lines up next to the three of another, like, on street signs. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, credit where credit's due. Yeah. It is cerebral in a way that kind of is effectively creepy in places. But it's also washed out by the bizarre sex scenes. We've already encountered a dozen or so. And each one is more upsetting than the one before it. Out and about in the world, Walter sees this dog from the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. that is named Ned. And he thinks that stands for Nasty Evil Dog. And as it turns out, it belongs to the groundskeeper of the cemetery where he caught him. So he tranks him and the parson comes up and is like, what is going on here? I demand an explanation. This dog belongs to the groundskeeper. The dog likes to stare at the graves. It's like they're watching over and we call him the keeper of the dead. I'm just like, uh, no, you don't. Cool. And that doesn't go anywhere. It does, but it's buried in so many layers of meaning that you could be forgiven for missing it. So we learn about this dead woman, Laura Tollins, and the clergy man who talks to Walter gives him some information, which leads Walter to think that the person convicted for her murder is the man who wrote the book. At this point, I feel it important to point out that the author's name is Topsy Kretz. I've got nothing. No. So he goes to the prison, talks to the guy named Kyle Flinch. We did skip over one thing. Fabrizio dead in the book. Yes. That's why he's making this connection and getting real weird about it. Fingerling has killed Fabrizio and has framed Miles for the murder. Yes. Well, so that's why he makes the connection with Laura, because she died on her 23rd birthday. And then the way that she died was so similar to the way Fabrizia died that he figures, oh, shit, that's what's going on here. I thought they hadn't shown that Fingerling was the one who killed Fabrizia yet, but... You can see it, like, 
in the scene where they're hauling off Miles, you can see like this split second flash of him just like Rembrandt lit, like he's hiding in the closet. He's hiding in the closet. Mm! Eh. We'll come back to it. I thought that hadn't happened yet, but that's beside the point. Goes to visit this guy, Kyle Flinch. Kyle maintains his innocence and talks about how hard it is to have this perception about him. And also says, hey, if I wrote the book, I wouldn't use a pseudonym that means top secrets. Just in case you didn't get it. I didn't because I didn't care. Yeah, I mean, you do have to be invested in this to go like, oh, top secrets, top top secrets, top, se- top secrets. And as he's leaving, Walter is convinced of Kyle's innocence because he can't find a way to tie him to the number 23. That's a problem. Sure. <laughs> so the real problem here is that Robin's starting to get in on this. That's not great. That's not great. Well, Robin found a PO address. So these actual psychopaths with Agatha's like tacit acceptance. Supervision. 23 <laughs> boxes of snow, like the little packing peanuts. Yeah. Rush. They send 23 boxes of peanuts rush to this PO box. How well do you have to be paid as the dog catcher? That's fucking expensive. Yes, but no, it's a dumb expense. But it's not so unreasonable that it can't be done. Okay. If I were going to do something like that, I would not choose the giant fucking boxes. I would choose the little book boxes. I'm not getting bogged down in this particular nope. detail. Holy this is, hell. This is dumb. Anyway, a guy comes in to check the P.O. box and they confront him and he slits his own throat rather than speaking to Walter. He also seems to recognize Walter, kind of. Yeah. He also has some shit written on his arm. Anyway, Agatha's going to take care of this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Agatha's on the case. At this point, among other points, that Walter's starting to get a little suspicious of Agatha's motivations here. Sure. But in their split, they do different things. Agatha gets an ID off the guy, I guess, Mm -hmm. and sees that he works for a place called the Nathaniel Institute. Yes. The guy presumably dies. Agatha says he dies, but Agatha is also not a reliable source of information here. While that's happening, she goes to this place to look for clues because she's now an investigator. Sure. (laughs) She goes to an abandoned insane asylum at night to look for clues to a thing that is happening solely in her husband's head. Mystery incorporated ass behavior. (laughs) Seriously. While that's happening, Walters says to himself, you know what, let's try this. Let's circle every 23rd word on every 23rd page of this book. And it sends him to a place called Casanova Park. But beware, Sparrow Man, hell will come for you. Or some shit like that. Yeah. So he and his son go to the park and dig under the 23rd step. And sure enough, they find a skeleton. Also, while this is happening, Agatha finds crazy scrawlings of 23-inspired mania at the Institute and also finds a box that says W. Sparrow. Yeah, so smash cut back to Walter and Robin finding a police box and calling the cops to come. I know, it is. that's the modern police box. Fair enough. I was about to say, what fucking year do you think it is? Yeah. That's what it evolved into. 
Anyway, it's a highway call box. They call for the police to come and exhume this skeleton. And when the police get there, there is no skeleton. Agatha and Isaac show up from who knows where. Where the fuck did Isaac come from? Don't worry about it. Exactly. They take them home, but Walter's on the edge of paranoia. The next day, sure, not really clear. It's that morning. So if you've ever had to give a statement to the fucking police that this took all night is not surprising. Sure. But Walter sees the fucking dog that he hates, and he nearly runs it over, but in a moment of clarity, I guess, stops just in time. And Agatha grabs his arm. Her hand is dirty. I think we skipped over this. There was a part where he went to a hotel. I actually know for sure that we did skip over this. Yeah, it doesn't fucking matter, though. None of it matters. We'll come back. Well, the hotel kind of does matter. So he went to a hotel, couldn't stay in room 23 because there were plumbing problems, so he stayed in a room nearby there. And he finishes the book, right? Yeah. Well, so it only goes to chapter 22. So he's like, well, that sucks. Not a satisfying ending. So that was a ways back. It the King Edward's Hotel, but O and T were burnt out. The King Edward's Hell. We're at the Prestige, so if you care about spoilers for this fucking movie, we're about to lay it all out. Yeah, and I've been dropping spoilers kind of throughout, but they've been yeah. enough that you wouldn't know until you've seen the movie. So Walter accuses Agatha of moving the skeleton and being top secrets, and this includes flashbacks that show scenes that support his thinking. Now, the funny way to do this would be for Agatha to go yes and no and to have Walter go respectively. But this is not a funny movie. Agatha did move the skeleton. Does she say why? To protect her family. Fine. But she's not Topsy Kretz. She did not write the book. Walter did. Yeah. The book is about you, Walter. The book is written by you. So then we go back to the hotel in room 23. Fresh coat of wallpaper, but... Well, I say fresh. It's already kind of like shitty and moldy and peeling. And that's why Walter can see that there's something, something written on the bare wall underneath. So he goes fucking bananas and rips down all the wallpaper and reveals the 23rd chapter of his book. And it's also here that we understand that this was originally a suicide note and that Walter, after finishing it, jumped out of the window attempting to kill himself to bring it back to some of the other things fabrizia is laura the woman who was murdered and miles the psych professor is kyle the guy who's in jail yes basically laura was in a relationship with walter she was very mean but she was also in a relationship with kyle she gave walter some gruff about something involving a knife and he ends up killing her buries the body And Kyle ends up taking the fall because he happened to grab the knife and be around her blood. Which, not how that works, but sure. So, jumps to his death, suicide note, and confession, and he ends up in the Nathaniel Institute because he didn't die. Yes, however, he did suffer trauma-induced aphasia and cannot remember anything. Amnesia. Amnesia. Fast forward, he gets treated, walks out, but then... Immediately! Walks into Agatha. Yes. Movie is a series of coincidences, really. But also, the doctor who is treating him kind of takes up his obsession. Yes. So it's kind of hinted throughout that this obsession is 
conscious and malignant and seeks one person to latch on to. And the entire sequences of deaths and murders is an attempt to break the cycle. But the number keeps finding another victim. This doctor is the guy we saw at the post office. In a blink and you'll miss it moment, we find that out. (laughs) Yeah. There's not a ton left of this. Walter almost gets hit by a bus and I don't care. He thinks about jumping in front of a bus, but then he hears Robin across the street and decides, no, not going to do that. And instead turns himself in for Laura's murder and faces the music. And we end at 2.15 with Walter in jail awaiting sentencing, saying time is just a killing system. Numbers with value attached. Roll credits. Roll credits. Oh, also Kyle got to go to Laura's like actual funeral. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You put something in our notes that relates to something I did. This movie has similar elements to I have four other movies (laughs) and all four of those did it better. Yep. You can guess one of them. Shutter Island. Yep. Ooh, that's the big one. Mm hmm. I also have Total Recall. Okay. Not knowing, like, what's real and what's not. Yeah, fair enough. Memento. Okay. And then, kind of, this one's a bit of a stretch, Stranger Than Fiction. Explain yourself. That's life being reflected in a book and Um, not knowing what to do about it. Okay. Because Walter sees himself in this book and says, this crazy guy just like me, for real, for real. (laughs) (laughs) And decides to become obsessed with 23 about it. Meanwhile, Harold Crick is like, well, let's see if I can use this to predict my future (laughs) or prevent a terrible end from happening. That's more accurate. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) This version of Shutter Island was trash. Yeah. Oh, also two other movies relating specifically to the, like, curse of 23 passing from people. It Follows, I think, had kind of that idea. And then a recent movie called Smile. So... Smile feels like it's too aggressively scary to be something that I'd be interested in seeing. I read a plot summary because I don't do horror. So I was yeah. like, I, maybe. Again, having not seen actually seen the movie, but getting high level, I'm like, eh, there's elements that are similar. Yeah, well, I mean, Contagion. Yeah, no, I get that. In that way, it's similar to The Ring or The Grudge. Sure. Which, again, even The Grudge, even Sarah Michelle Gellar... Sam Raimi, The Grudge, was better than this. But in that, you can see that there's elements of things that work. Yes. It's moody very, very accurately, to my understanding, portrays a descent into madness and the disorienting confusion that comes with that. It's atmospheric. The script could have used a couple of passes. (laughs) Which the fun thing about this movie, I I did a little bit of research because this is one of Jim Carrey's serious films and widely considered one of his worst serious films. So I wanted to know if he played any part in writing this. And the answer is no. And in fact, this movie was pitched to a producer who was absolutely destitute and was about to move back to the UK and moved in with his girlfriend to make this movie, they ended up getting married. And as far as I know, they're still together. But he was penniless and about to go back home in shame, having failed to be a 
big Hollywood producer. And then this drops in his lap and he goes, yes, this is the best script I've ever read. So I don't know if another pass through the script was on the table for this. Didn't seem like it to me, but it definitely could have used it. Want to play armchair psychologist? Let's do it. Three things. Paranoia, very clearly. OCD, I think is on the table. Yeah, classic OCD. Like not the contemporary understanding of OCD where it's just being like anal retentive to a problematic degree. But like we're needing a ritual to prevent catastrophe is a symptom. I could absolutely see the thought process within an OCD mind of I need to identify 23s or else my family dies. Because that's kind of what this movie happens. I feel like the actual impetus there is or else I die and the number goes after my family. Oh, yeah. Which it's a number. It's an abstract concept. But that said, lots and lots of coincidences. We are pattern recognition machines. And so we are susceptible to this kind of shit. Generally, the term disordered thinking. I also want to use a fun little phrase from psychology. External locus of control. Ooh, do tell. The idea of locus of control is what shapes one's life. I'm sure there's a gradient. I took a high school psych class and I haven't delved too much further. So I'm sure that it's not one or the other, but a gradient. More internal says that your actions shape your life and external says outside forces. So people who have an external locus of control or more inclined to that tend to feel more helpless. And I could see that manifesting as being more inclined to believe in fate, which that does come up in this movie. He talks a lot like there's so many coincidences that happen. But he does end the movie saying that there is no such thing as fate, only choices. Yeah, which in a way, that's character growth. It's moving from external locus of control to internal. I just think that's also a fun word, locus. It is. Now I'm just imagining like the external locus of control in Egypt. Yeah. (laughs) Suffer! (laughs) I am suffering! (laughs) Well, that's cool. Got anything else? Kind of related, this is like, this is a conspiracy thinking. Like, it shows how you can get into the mindset of conspiracy theories, where you just notice a few things that don't mean anything, but you're like, no one else is noticing them. I'm so smart for having noticed them. That means something. I forgot what I read, but it was a tweet, so like, whatever. It was something along the lines of conspiracy thinking is a shortcut people take instead of actually learning or researching. I think that's all I got. I mean, it's kind of right there. They say it. It's like, hey, this guy's not well. Yeah. Sophia, take it away. This is being recorded on Sunday, November the 5th. As we're recording, I think it was Friday in Alabama, a mayor of a small town in Alabama and a former pastor killed himself in front of police because... It was revealed by the local right-wing press that he was trans. And his search history included searches for hormone replacement therapy. Is that what happened? I thought it came out that he just did drag, but... No, they found pictures of him dressed as a woman. And in his search history, he was looking for cross-gender hormone therapy or cross-sex hormone. So this is where I tell you 
that poor Walter transition could have saved her. Suicide Blonde was taken by an idea, an idea that was radical outside of the mainstream, something that had the potential to shatter the world. And she had to be killed for it. Or rather, that idea killed her. But Suicide Blonde is just an aspect of fingerling, an internal understanding of oneself, one's nascent femininity. And as somebody who grew up in a religiously repressive household, girl, same. (laughs) (laughs) But the entire thing is reflective of a process by which a person who lives in that kind of repressive environment has a suicide blonde in their head telling them, you can just be a girl, but that doesn't match with the externality. Like the reality of that is not something that will ever be acceptable in their society. So the suicide blonde has to die. And if the individual doesn't kill the suicide blonde, society is happy to do it for them. It's not a happy story. It's not a happy analysis. And I wish we had done this movie three weeks ago, but there you have it. Bubba Copeland is Walter Sparrow, and or rather is Fingerling, and Fingerling is Bubba Copeland, and so, so, so many other trans people in religiously oppressive environments. And that is my fortnightly bummer. So do we get into ratings? Because I have no other thoughts. Ratings! <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10 of enjoyability, where would you like to put this? I had to walk away from this one a lot more than could justify a 5, so I'm going to say a 4. I was going to say 4.5. Okay. And then on a scale of obscurity, with 1 being a Best Picture nominee, 10 being a literal student film, where are you putting this one? Well, this was in no danger of getting Best Picture, but it was nominated for a Worst Picture Razzie, so it's got to be a 1. It's just lost to the sands of time. Sure. I'll say two then. No, I'll meet you at a one. That, like, it's Jim Carrey. This is like height of his career. Well, this a is after. the back end of the height. Like, this is the denouement. Yes. But still a very visible actor. And it's a comedic actor trying to do not comedy. So that tends to get a little bit more attention than, for example, Adam Sandler putting out Hubie Halloween. As we wrap up our episode, we end with our pop culture pop-out, a piece of pop culture we've been interested in lately and just want to talk about for a little bit. Sophia, would you like to start us off? Sure. So I wanted to talk this week about my dance school. So I do a couple of different forms of dance. I do flamenco, but aside from that, that that I do in a, a private studio, but aside from that, I also study ballet at the Alvin Ailey Center. And if you're unfamiliar with Alvin Ailey, This is a gentleman of African-American extraction who was a dancer, who was a director, a choreographer, and an activist. And he founded the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, which the extension in Manhattan is literally across the street from my house. Alvin Ailey was this hugely important proponent of Black people in arts, and he has some of the most amazing dance pieces that I think I've ever seen. Just an incredible person and an incredible artist. And I'm really proud to attend that school. So that said, in the interval, when we are off for a week before we record the next episode, 
I have a performance at the Allen Ailey Center. I'll be performing an original choreography by my ballet teacher as part of a showcase at the Alvin Ailey Theater. So I'm very excited about that. Kyle, what you got for us? I saw a movie a few weeks ago at this point called Dicks the Musical. This is from A24. (laughs) Our friends over at A24. I love that so much for them. And the two leads are not super well known. Apparently this is based on a sketch they would do at UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade, that they made into a movie. And it's parent trap, but adult salesmen who are terrible. So it's parent trap meets the goods, live hard, sell hard. Yeah. Their parents are played by Megan Mullally and Nathan Lane, and their boss is Megan the Stallion. I love that so fucking much. No, I've seen the I've seen the trailer. Yeah, I've seen the trailer for this. I'm super excited to watch it. The movie's dumb, but it knows it's dumb, and you kind of just got to lean into it. Otherwise, you're going to have a bad time. However, there is a part of the movie that I hate so much and is unfortunately a large part of the movie. And if you see the trailer, it's the part called The Sewer Boys. Mm, remind me. They're fucking like creatures they're fucking puppets that are ugly and disgusting and they play a way bigger part in the movie than i'd like them to oh chuds they're chuds yeah and it's awful the music's pretty decent i was laughing a lot and yeah just don't take it too seriously and you'll have a good time sophia where can people find you online well i have a link tree and the big hits are you can find me on threads at sophia h underscore mdt and that's also my Instagram handle because that's how Threads works. I have Medium at Sophia Elena Maestatrik. There I have Queering House, my queer media analysis project, as well as The Fifth Columnist. I haven't done anything for a little while. I've been extremely busy rehearsing. Like, I have eight hours of dance a week. It's a lot of dance. So I haven't put out a lot there recently, but I do have some things to say that will be coming up pretty soon. Fun fact, Off the Film Path now has a Threads account. It's not big yet, but we are there and we'll post episodes and I'll be available to do reviews and and live reacts on threads. And I won't, I will not have to dip my webbed flippers into the Nazi nightmare scape that is X anymore. Fuck X. I'm not on X. Well, I technically am, but like I only basically fight with people who are like bordering on anti-Semitism at this point. Don't find me on Facebook. Kyle, where can people find you? I'm on Tumblr, Letterboxd, and Twitch under Hebrew Hammer. We do have a Twitter account at Off the Film Path where we tweet about movies, including the ones we watch for this. If you'd like, there is a link at the bottom of our show notes where you can leave a voice message to appear in an upcoming episode, whether to leave your own pop culture pop out or talk about the movies we discuss. But in order to get in on the next one, Sophia, what are we watching? I don't want to do this. I know. Division three, football's finest. You're going to drag me, a transnexual, into a football movie. It's not going to be my best day ever. A very bigoted football movie. Very big. Well, I mean, but I repeat myself. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. Tell your friends about our delightful musings. Go insane and then write a manifesto about how awesome our podcast is. Exactly. 
But thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.